some of the greatest chapters written in the Bible so far. And there's more ahead. Actually, we've seen a great romance, haven't we? A marriage made in heaven. Or you could say a marriage made with care, children bathed in prayer. Because the servant of Abraham goes out to, under God's guidance, select a wife for Isaac. He was 40 years old. It was time for him to get married. Uh, he was getting started, and so Abraham sent out his servant. He came back from the area with Rebekah. They got together, and it's just a romantic chapter, last couple of chapters. But the romance seems to end. Though they're together, they love each other. When the children come, there is a division between mom and dad. Dad favors one son. Mom favors another son. And they become very child-centered in their parenting, a mistake indeed for parents. When all of a sudden the relationship that they had is subservient to the new relationship. Instead of fanning the flame of love and respect with each other, there you are, they are using the children really to divide the family. We saw in verse 23 how that she was pregnant, she comes to the Lord, and uh, she's having a tough time in her pregnancy, and the Lord tells her the reason that two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in the womb. And we remember that the twins were Esau, which meant hairy, because he came out all hairy and red. And uh, they named the other one heel catcher, Jacob, which came to fit his personality because he became someone who grabbed the heel to trip his brother up, as uh, we see in the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 29. We left off with this whole concept of the birthright because Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of chili. That's a New Mexico version of the Bible. It was actually a bowl of pottage or lentil soup, a chocolatey brown, reddish kind of a soup. Esau was hungry, came in from the field, and uh, Jacob prepared a meal for him. The birthright was very important. There was a law in the ancient cultures called the law of promogeniture. Don't you just love those big words? Promogeniture was a law that stated the firstborn male in a family had privileges that no other children, no other child in the family had. Number one, he would succeed his father. Number two, he would have his father's authority. He would be the head over the family when the father dies. And number three, later on in the law of Moses, the firstborn gets double the amount financially, a double portion of the goods. So it had its privileges and also its responsibilities. That is why, by the way, when Elisha the prophet comes to Elijah and he says, give me a double portion, what he was asking for is to be the successor in the prophetic office of Elijah. Let me succeed you just like the firstborn son in a family would succeed the father. Now there's a prophecy given. Two nations are in your womb. But it says, the older will serve the younger. That is the reverse of the law of primogeniture. That law says that the younger will serve the older, but here God reverses it. And prophetically, in advance, God chooses Jacob over Esau. And actually, the rest of the, uh, the next couple chapters bear that out. 
says, when the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red. But notice verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. These guys were very different in personality. Esau was outwardly much more appealing in my view and probably in the view of most fathers. You know, dads often, you know, they, they want to have a boy. I know several guys who've had uh, daughters and, and they love their daughters. Don't get me wrong, they love them and they wouldn't trade them for the world. But a couple of my friends just uh, said, oh, just, I'd love to have a boy. And I know one guy, a friend of mine in California, has three daughters, and uh, his wife got pregnant again, and he said, you know, the odds of us having a son are few and far between. But God did grant them their request. And it's not that he loves him more than the other, but because he's had that desire for so long, he's got to watch himself, that he doesn't favor the one over the other. Jacob was more of a mama's boy. He loved to just stay in the tent, hang out, cook. Esau was an all-American boy, went out for sports, a real go-getter, an athlete, a hunter, liked to get out in the field, take the old gun out, clean it. Of course, they didn't have guns in those days. I'm modernizing it a bit, but take the bow out, go hunting, and just... And he smelled like an outdoors type. As we will see, his father, though he is... Uh, dim of sight. When the sun comes in for the birthday, he goes, well, you smell like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. There was a smell. In fact, he said, you smell like a field blessed by the Lord. In other words, you, you, you smell like a pasture, Esau. He was a wild man. Now, you can imagine how ripe he was as he would probably not bathe much in those times living in the tents like uh, some people even do to this day. Though he was outwardly appealing, spiritually he had much, much lacking. You know, it's always dangerous to choose, or let's make it really modern, to vote for someone on the basis of appearance. But yet, it's been shown that many Americans will cast their ballot up merely upon the appearance the confidence, rather than the issues at stake. Oh, you sounded very confident tonight. Yeah, great. Well, you'd be a good leader. Oh, he looks pretty good, very calm, and parts his hair nice, nice. You can never judge a person outwardly and make a valid judgment. Samuel tried it. He went to the house of David, and the firstborn was Eliab, and, and he noticed that Eliab was tall and good-looking and just a real looked the part. God said, Samuel... Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have refused him. He said, The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but what? God looks on the heart. Aren't you glad for that? Appearance makes no points in God's book. Now Esau was very outwardly appealing, probably aggressive, probably a good leader. But he was not God's choice, though he was born first, he was not God's choice for the lineage of the covenant that God gave to Abraham and Isaac. And we will see that God chose Abraham, God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, and God chooses Jacob, not Esau, though Esau in the law of primogeniture would have the rights. So 
Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, the two nations that were in her womb turned out to be, number one, Israel, and number two, a nation by the name of Edom, which if you were to try to find today, you'd never find it. But the modern country of Jordan, which I have visited on a few different occasions, is the modern counterpart of the Edomites. And they had their kingdom headquarters down in the rock city of Petra, which is still present to this day. The Edomites and the Israelites have fought it out, had fought it out for many years. In fact, when Moses takes the children of Israel through the land of Edom and asks for passage and for protection, the Edomites attack the Israelites, and they've been at each other's heels for many, many generations. Of course, the last Edomite was who? Anybody remember? Herod the Great. He was the last known Edomite, and uh, after him, there's no record historically of any other Edomites. They were really wiped out. Well, let's just look at verse 29, and uh, we're going to skim chapter 26, but there are some points at the end of chapter 25 we want to look at. Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me. Now, you can see right there where his interests lay. He wants to feed his face. He's interested in the flesh. And when he's pressed, the flesh means more to him than the spirit. Feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name is called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said to him, look, I'm about to die. Now he wasn't going to die, but we even say that, don't we? I'm starving to death. So what profit shall this birthright be to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau is a natural man. It's the counterpart of what the New Testament would call a natural man as opposed to a spiritual man. A natural man is one who is living according to his nature, human nature. The dictates of the flesh, the appetites of the body. He doesn't care about spiritual things. Spiritual things are fuzzy. They are non-tangible. Thus, they are not important. He was the kind of guy who said, look, what, what good is a promise spiritually to me? I can't eat a promise. All this spiritual nonsense, you're into that. You're an indoors boy. I'm a man of the field. I care about my senses, and I care about being satisfied physically. A spiritual man, though he has a body of flesh, keeps the spiritual things uppermost rather than the appetites of his flesh. And Paul said, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. But a spiritual man judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no man. So he said, look, I'm about to die. What profit shall this birthright be to me? But now he says, swear. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. There's a lot of people like Esau, lots of them. Most people, most people are like Esau. Most people in, the, in this world do not care about spiritual things. As evidenced by the fact when you share with them, 
Notice their body language and notice the response they have to the necessity of being born again. When you tell people at work or your family, hey, you need a relationship with God. You need your sins forgiven. You need a spiritual dimension. Most of them will laugh it off. Most of them scoff at that. Their philosophy is eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They seek the things Jesus said the heathen seek after. What shall we wear? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Those are the things Jesus said ought not to be uppermost in our own minds and our own hearts. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all of these things will be added unto you by the Lord. Now Jacob is interested in spiritual things. Now I'm not going to paint him out to be some kind of a hero. He wasn't. He was a deceiver, a manipulator, and he learned it from his mother, as evidenced in this chapter. There's a division between mama and papa. They're using the kids to manipulate. Rebecca heard from the Lord. The promise would go to Jacob. But instead of letting God do it, she decides, okay, I'm going to manipulate events here. And Jacob does the same thing. He says, listen, I'm interested in that spiritual birthright. Tell you what, you want some good cooking? I'll give you the best meal you ever had. But I want that birthright. He was interested in spiritual things, but he was a carnal believer. He went about it the wrong way. Instead of waiting on the Lord and for God's promises, he went about it the wrong way. Would you be considered an Esau or a Jacob? Is your heart in the spirit or in the flesh, the things of your bodily appetites? Now, the bodily appetites, by the way, are normal and natural and given to you by God to fulfill you. God gave you an appetite. God gave you drives in your body, the homeostasis, those natural bodily drives that help your body function. You have an air drive. That can be easily proven by someone cupping his hand over your nose and over your mouth for just about a minute. You will do anything you can. You will be driven because you have the necessity to breathe. It's a natural body drive. It keeps you ticking. You have a drive for water. You get thirsty. Your system is craving hydration, and so you'll have a drive. And, Man, I need something to drink. And that's good. If you didn't have that drive, you'd die. You have a food drive. Now, some people's food drive in, in, in some ways is uh, uh, excessive. Uh, I guess mine would be considered a little bit excessive. I love to eat. And God gave me that drive to keep my body functioning, to keep me going. It gives me fuel. Man has a sex drive given by God for pleasure and procreation of our race. When any of those drives, however, become goals instead of gateways, they become idols, we're driven by them instead of controlling them ourselves, we are a natural man. Would you be considered an Esau? Are the things of the body, the things of the flesh, the things of comfort more important to you than the things of the spirit? Would you forfeit your spiritual birthright to satisfy your bodily appetites? Now, there was a famine in the land. Just so you don't think that Isaac, Jacob is Mr. Spiritual, just dwelling on the promises of God, chapter 26 blows that theory completely to shreds. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands 
And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice. You can tell that God is viewing him through eyes of love. Not counting all of the mistakes Abraham made. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now he's going down south and God stops him and says, Hey, wait, just in case you're thinking of going to Egypt, stop right there. I've given you this land. I'm going to promise you, I have promised you that I'll keep you in this land. So don't do what Abraham did, your father. Don't go to Egypt. This is the land I promised to give you and provide for you in. He was probably on his way down there. So he stopped at Gerar, which is almost down there. It's on the way to Egypt. But he stops there. And... He pulls the same old junk that Abraham pulled, notice. The men of the place asked him about his wife, and he said, She's my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife, because he thought, Lest the men of the place should kill me for Rebecca, because she is beautiful to behold. Where did he get that from? From dad. When I was a boy, I used to look at things that my dad did and I would analyze them. I would try to figure out why he did them. And my resolve was, he is so short-sighted. I'm much smarter than my father, I thought. I'm able to see right through his mistakes. I will never do what he just did. I've had to eat those words many times. It is amazing how much we pick up through the education of seeing something modeled in mom and dad. Only by God's grace can the sins of our fathers that are often passed down by modeling to the children and children's children be changed. And they can by God's grace. We're never allowed in the scripture to blame our behavior on our parents. We are responsible before God for our behavior and choices now. Are we shaped by them? Certainly. Do they influence us? Yes. Can we blame mom and dad and our environment? Well, I'm that way because. Well, you can say I'm that way because, but I choose not to be that way. And by God's grace, you don't have to be that way. And we're always looking for scapegoats, unfortunately. I think many people, you know, there's the old, um, there's the codependency theory that has become very popular. And though I'm not going to go on a tirade against it, uh, people are expanding the borders of codependency. I'm the adult child of a bum. Um, I'm the adult child of um, a jobless man or, or what, I mean, just it, expand it to almost anything. And it's basically, uh, you know, my mother enabled him and he did this, thus I have to act this way. And so I have an excuse for it. Hey, you may be the adult child of a lot of different things. I'm the adult child of, and I can name off a list of uh, things my parents did wrong. But that doesn't give me the right to live in that state apart from the changes God can make in my life. And God has made some pretty radical changes. There were certain patterns that I fell into because my dad did certain things. And I could identify them and say, it's just what I have seen and been it's been modeled in my life. That anger, that flare-up, that decision to be impetuous in this area. But that doesn't give me the excuse now to stay in that. 
Once it's identified, Paul the Apostle said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. And it's good to identify the past, but it's wrong to dwell in it. Old Isaac did what Dad did. It's sort of like a deja vu. His faith was tested. He failed the test in that. Uh, said, she's my sister. And verse 10, Abimelech said, What is this that you have done? One of the people might soon have laid with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. It is very sad when the world rebukes the believer. There's a survey done by, and, and I, I'm fond of reading statistics and survey because they give somewhat an indication of what people think. And they interviewed groups of people who used to go to church and failed in their church attendance. They were asked why. Many of them were people who just decided never to go to church. They'd never really been to one. They, they were just people in the world. Of course, one of the reasons they said people didn't invite them, but one of the reasons they said is that Churches have become too political. They do everything but preach the gospel. They're concerned about this fund and that fund and this growth and that and this committee and that committee, and they're doing everything but what they are called to do. Now, when the world says that of the church, the church is in trouble. I have had experience in this last year with an interesting organization that by virtue of their logo, I, have just, I, I had decided to respect and I have come to lose all my respect for it. And that is the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, which was started by Dr. Billy Graham as a watchdog organization to keep people financially above board and accountable. I had the utmost respect for them because of their name. Accountability? Yeah, we need accountability. Until one organization of whom I am a board member, Samaritan's Purse World Medical Mission, was suspended by them by false allegations. Completely false, so much so that ECFA could have been taken to court for libel and slander and been sued like crazy. But we decided, no, this is, this is unbiblical. They claim to be Christians. We have no right to do that. Billy Graham's lawyers were in on some of these meetings. I attended all of the meetings. I was shocked at what this organization, so-called Christian organization, was deciding to say in Paul. Perhaps for some reason to just degrade the name of Billy Graham himself and his son Franklin. What is really interesting is that a, world or, a worldly organ, a secular organization was brought into it, several of them, one of them being the Better Business Bureau, who investigated the corporation meticulously and said, you guys are spotless. We have never seen a board as meticulous, as thorough, and as accountable as Samaritan's Purse World Medical Mission. And what this Christian organization has done to you is absolutely wrong. And they shared their procedures of accountability, which were far more biblical than this Christian organization. You've got a secular organization pointing the finger at a Christian organization, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, and when you have that rebuke going on, you've got a real problem with that Christian organization. Since then, several large Christian ministries in examining the case are looking at it and deciding, hey, these guys are squirrely. We're going to pull out 
of this Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability because they're very wrong and narrow in their accountability procedures. And we feel like it would be detrimental to the gospel of Jesus Christ because certain things get leaked to the press and certain things have been leaked to the press with uh, Franklin and Samaritan's Purse. And the unfortunate thing is that even a Christian magazine like Christianity Today would use as their source, quoting Esquire and Star Magazine, these rag magazines as their sources for information. That to me is despicable. It shows that even Christian magazines and organizations have sunk to a low level, and now you've got secular organizations saying, hey, you guys Christians out there? It's a sad day, but we've come to this. I'd never join that organization. There's no spiritual, biblical accountability. Financial accountability is certainly important, but not the way they would go about it. And certainly accountability exceeds just finances. There's the integrity of the scripture in doing things in a biblical fashion. Here Abimelech rebukes Isaac, the secular world rebuking the Christian world. Well, the rest of the story, you could just call it, oh well. Because he goes to all of the wells that his father Abraham has dug and they've been filled up by the Philistines and uh, Remember that in those days, they depended upon rain from heaven and upon digging of wells for their water. In fact, today in many Mideast countries, some of the Bedouins would sooner give you milk than give you water. They would kill for water because it is so precious and so important. They'd rather go milk a goat or one of their animals and give it to you but not give you their water because it's very precious. It, their flocks and their families depend on it. But uh, notice with me verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. They were a grief of mind is because they were Canaanites. They were foreigners. There was an unequal yoke. And they just, it just bothered mom and dad. Chapter 7 is an unfortunate story of fraud and deceit. It shows how both of them had favorites. And uh, mom and, and dad, you know, kind of divided the kids up. Rebecca loved Jacob, but Isaac loved Esau. It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold now. I am old. I love it when people admit their age. Instead of trying to, you know, reverse uh, the aging process, there's, of course, a New Life magazine that's out concerning the aging process. And I saw a whole article I told you about how people are just trying to find the fountain of youth and, and uh, hey, let's grow old gracefully. And, uh, you know, he, he, at least he said, yeah, I'm old. And uh, I do not know the day of my death. So he was getting up there. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love. Bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. A couple of interesting points. Number one, we see that he is getting old. He can't see, so he's feeble, and it would seem bedfast at this point. However... Twenty years later, 
when Jacob, who goes to Haran, comes back to this place, his father is still alive. So he thought, look, I'm old and I could die soon. I don't know when I'm going to die, so give me a real nice meal, my last meal perhaps. Twenty years later, he's still alive. In fact, he doesn't die for 40 years. My personal sentiments is that death is not the worst thing that could really happen to a person. It's unfortunate and, and it's hard, really, when a person gets to the stage where their body remains, their tent keeps going, and uh, their spirit is, in a sense, trapped within the body, unable to really function. I don't know why those matters are in the hands of God. It's not for me, really, to decide or to question. That's the way it is. But you can understand how a person, when they get to that point, would echo the words of the Apostle Paul, it's better to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We being in this body do earnestly groan, desiring to be delivered and clothed with our heavenly habitation. The Apostle Paul in the Philippian jail when he was chained to the Praetorian Guard, he said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Far better. He was getting to that place, and yet he remained for quite a while. So he says, I don't know the day of my death. So he says, get your weapons, go out, hunt, make for me savory food. Actually, it could be translated spicy food. Something interesting in the Mideast, they like lots of seasoning in their food. Lots of spices. That's why, one of the reasons I love going over there. and I love going on the tours to Israel, but, you know, I kind of try to lose a little weight before I go because I know I'm going to gain twice as much when I'm there. It, it just, it's awesome. They like lots of spice. And the further you go east, it gets really hot, really spicy. And they just love savory food. You know, they, they weren't the meat and potatoes, Midwest sort of thing, you know, just real mild. No, they wanted it spicy and robust. Give me some of that savory food, man, that, that you hunt, that wild game. That my soul may bless you before I die. It's hard to believe this is the same Isaac in Genesis 22. Who is so submissive to the will of God. When he said, Father, there's the altar. Where's the burnt offering? He said, well, God will provide himself a, uh, an offering. Um, and then he told him the story. And Isaac willingly climbs on the altar by faith. Believing the promises of God. Here... He's going against God. Now, God told his wife, and I presume he knew, the prophecy. Two nations are in your womb. The older will serve the younger. But what a cheap way to bless a person. Hey, you give me a good meal, and I'll give you my blessing. Now, Rebecca was listening. <laughs> she was eavesdropping. Just like her mother-in-law, Sarah listening in the tent. When the angel said, Sarah's going to have a child this time next year, and she would, <laughs> and she thought within herself, oh, I'm sure. God said, hey, why did your wife laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. See, she was eavesdropping the whole time. <laughs> Rebecca's listening in. When Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it, and Rebecca spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, 
Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you to do. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves and you will take it to your father that he may eat it that he may bless you before his death. Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Look, Esau my brother is a hairy man and I'm a smooth-skinned man. See, they were fraternal, not identical twins. Perhaps my father will feel me. He'll grab my arm. And I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. You won't seem to be a deceiver, pal. You are a deceiver. And he follows his mom's advice and he will deceive his father. And I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, listen to this, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and get them for me. Now, her words are sadly going to come true. There's going to be a curse on her. Because when she sends her son away, he says, we'll go for a few days. Your brother wants to kill you. But listen, it'll be over in a little bit and you'll come back. She never saw her son the rest of her days. She died while he was out. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. What a sight this guy must have looked like. Fortunately, his dad couldn't see him, but this would look like he was dressed for Halloween or something. I mean, little parts of goat's hair all around his neck. He probably stumbled in. She gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, and he probably tried to act like him. I am Esau, your firstborn. And I tried to put on his voice. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? See, he's kind of got wind of this. He's a little bit, though he's old, he has his wits about him. He's learned a few things and needs to be respected for that. He can't see, but he can certainly perceive. And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. Liar! And he uses God's name, in fact. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. And he thought, oh, no, just what I thought would happen. I told my mom this is going to happen. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy, like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. Lie upon lie upon lie. And he said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. And he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him. Boy, that takes faith. Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and the plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. 
Now, was it the will of God for Jacob to receive this blessing? It was. The older will serve the younger. The promise of God in the prophecy was the reverse of the law of primogeniture. It won't be the older, it will be the younger. Did Rebekah know that? Definitely. Did Jacob know that? Yes. Of course, he was the one who said at the beginning, hey, some of your birthright. Well, I don't care about the birthright. Now, he probably thought, who cares about the birthright? I want the blessing. Of course, the blessing and the birthright go hand in hand. The problem with Rebekah and Jacob is that though it was the will of God to receive this blessing, God would have done it in his own sweet time, in his own way. But they thought, hey, it's God's will, and they went about to do what a lot of times we try to do, help God out. You know, God has a busy job running the universe. It takes a lot of power to spin that old globe on its axis. And I know that he's busy, so listen, God, just don't worry about it. I'll do it for you. I'll help you out. I'll do the work of God in the energy of the flesh. So trying to manipulate, connive, and deceive, they tried to obtain this blessing. It's a mistake when we start thinking that God is dependent upon us to work. Unfortunately, ministers are largely to fault for this. This is God's ministry. God, I'm God's anointed. God wants to work through me, and if he doesn't work through me, God may not work at all. Of course, there's a large debt that God needs to pay off. And uh, you need to send us your support. And if you don't support us, this ministry will fail. I'm God's man. We saw the sad case of Jimmy Swaggart when he was confronted with church discipline, according to the scriptures, like he should have been. He said, no, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm God's man. God wants to work through me. Listen, God is not dependent upon us to do his work. He is not depending on us to do his work. If you fail to do his work, there's a lot of other vessels out there that God will choose. And God will, believe me, God will do his work. Zerubbabel thought that he was the man for the job. So God told the prophet, go tell Zerubbabel this message. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It's not going to get done by his ingenious plans and fortitude. I will do it. Unfortunately, when we decide to do God's work in the energy of the flesh, we're pulling what we see here. God will do his work. It will get done. Yeah, there's that great story in the Old Testament book of Esther. Remember Esther was the queen. She was Jewish. Her husband was the king of the land. Her uncle Mordecai comes to her and says, hey, there's a plot afoot to kill all of the Jews. You need to go talk to your husband, the king, and put an end to this. Now, the problem was you could not enter the courtroom of the king unannounced. If you did and the king refused to raise his scepter to you, the guards would immediately take you and cut your head off. Many wives of rulers were killed precisely that way. She says, Mordecai, I can't just barge in and talk to the king. I could get my head cut off. Mordecai said, now listen carefully. Don't think that because you're the queen that you will escape this sentence because you're Jewish. And know also this, that perhaps God brought you to the kingdom in this position for such a time as this. 
This could be what your whole life was planned to become by God. But also, Esther, know this, that if you do not comply and do not stand in the gap, deliverance will rise from another quarter. If you fail to be the one to do this, God will deliver his people because we're his covenant people. And if you're not going to be the one that God's going to use, I am assured that deliverance will come from another quarter. God will use somebody else. What a privilege to be used by God. It's an honor to be used by God. I constantly pray, God, keep me usable. Don't let me, by sin, by deceit, or anything else, don't let anything blind me so that I'm put on the shelf. It's the greatest, most awesome privilege to be used by God. But if any of his people fail, deliverance will arise from another quarter. Now God had chosen Jacob. He did not choose Esau. But God had his own method to accomplish it. All right, let's go on. It happened as soon as Isaac finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob scarcely had gone out from the presence of Esau's father, that Esau's brother came in from hunting. He also made savory food and brought it to his father. He said, Let my father arise, eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Now his voice was unmistakable. And we read in verse 33, Isaac trembled exceedingly. And he said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all of it before you came. And I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. He thought, oops, wrong one. Actually, it was the right one. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceeding great and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me, even also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named heel catcher? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Hey, don't you have another one left? Oh, come on. I mean, I'm the firstborn. Lay it on me. And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master. And all his brethren that I have given to him as servants, with grain and wine I have sustained him. And what shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me. Even me also, O oh, my father, and Esau lifted up his voice and wept. There's an awful lot of people, again, like Esau. They want the blessing, not the birthright. I want the blessing. They don't want the Lord personally in their lives, but they want his gifts. They want the healing, but not the healer. They don't want God's sovereign control over their life. And they often come to church as part of the honorary Bless Me Club. Here I am. You have an hour of my time. This better be good. Bless me. Bless me. Bless me. And they'll often walk away. Well, that was, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, oh, I'll give it a 6. Easy to dance to. I was all right. See, the whole issue for many people has become, did I get blessed rather than did I bless? It becomes a spectator sport instead of something that people participate in. I want the blessing. I want the blessing but they don't care about the birthright, the relationship they have with God. 
And Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth, and the dew from the dew of heaven from above, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it will come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now let me read what the book of Hebrews says concerning this event. You can turn to it if you want in Hebrews 12. If you don't like to, I'll read it to you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking diligently lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now don't mistake what that is saying. He did not seek for repentance with tears. He sought for the blessing with tears. In the context, that's what it's saying. He shed tears like a lot of people. Oh, they're so remorseful, but they're sorry because of what they missed out on rather than offending the Lord. There are many criminals tonight in prison who are very remorseful that they've gotten caught. They're not necessarily sorry for what they have done or the life that they have lived or that they have offended God or man, but they're very remorseful. I'm not saying everyone, but many. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Esau was not changing his heart when he was crying, when he lifted up his voice. He was sorrowed because he missed a blessing. But his heart had not changed. It was not true repentance. Verse 41 of Genesis says, So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. He thought, you know, my dad's going to kick the bucket soon. Seven days of mourning is prescribed by Semitic law. Then I'm going to kill my brother. Jesus said that if a person hates his brother, he's a murderer in his heart. This is where murder begins when you say, I hate him. Jesus said, you're guilty of committing murder. And the seed of murder was already in his heart. He said, I hate my brother. I'm going to kill him when it's all over. The words of Esau. Her older son were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. Now she said a few days. <laughs> Come on, we're talking several hundred miles here. She will never see him again. He'll be gone for 20 years. By the time he gets back into the land, they will have buried his mother. She'll never see him after this point. Jacob is a conniver, and he's about to meet his match. He says, go see my brother Laban. Now remember, Laban was the one when Rebekah was chosen for Isaac, who saw the glittery gold that the servant of the Lord had for Rebekah. Ooh, gold. There's something in it for me then. Oh, come, blessed of the Lord, stay the night. Because he saw the finances that Abraham had. He was in it for the gold. Laban will match the deceitfulness of Jacob. It's kind of like who can outdeceive who. And it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, play as we get to it in the next several chapters. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. Now I know that it sort of takes the romance away from the story when you realize that at this point... Jacob is about 70 years old. 
and, you know, just leaving home, running away from home at 70 years of age. <laughs> Been attached to his mother's apron strings for a long time. Also keep in mind that at that point, which was not that much post-Diluvian, after the flood, the canopy of the earth had been removed, the strain of humanity was on a much higher plane, and people lived double our present age. The lifespan shortens dramatically, but then gradually, until during the time of the monarchy under King David, the average age span is about 70 to 80 years of age, like it is today. But during the time of the patriarchs, they lived a long time, so 70 years old, he was still young and spry, and uh, probably resembled that of a 30 to 40-year-old in those days. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, and I will send and bring you from there right. Yeah. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life. You can see, see why. The kind of a relationship that she's had with her family. Because of the daughters of Heth. That's her excuse, though. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. At this point, I think he recognizes God really has chosen him, and so I'm going to give him a bona fide blessing. Took him and he blessed him and charged him, and he said, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Get up, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. How did he know that they had kids? They were quite a ways away in distance. But obviously there was some kind of communication, right? Perhaps the caravans that traveled from Syria down through Israel dropped letters off or correspondence uh, from the family, and they would correspond over the months through the caravans. Found out that he's got some daughters now. Hey, Laban's got some good-looking gals. Go over and see them. Um... Just a note before we go on. If you were at this point to ask, what nationality are the patriarchs? You would have to say they are Syrian in the general sense of the word because the Syrian nation extended all the way over to Mesopotamia. Abraham was not a Jew. Isaac was not a Jew. Jacob was not a Jew. They were Syrian in their background Israelites don't come on the scene until Jacob is changed and his name from heel catcher to Israel. And then the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes are Israelites. Now the beginning of the nation is with Abraham and he's the father of it, but technically he's not Jewish. Until God establishes, we'll see another covenant um, as we go. All right. He says, May God uh, Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land which God gave, in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away. He went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Uh, in the next uh, several verses, Esau knowing that his previous wives uh, really bugged mom and dad, he decided to marry one of the daughters of Ishmael, um, which you know, probably gained respect and favor in the eyes of his father. Uh, verse 9, Esau went to Ishmael, took uh, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nib 
or whatever, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. Um, we have just a couple moments to look at these next verses. One of my favorite stories is here, so we really should pick it up next week. And I uh, mm, hate to do it, but I, I'm going to have to leave it for next time. It's actually, oh, it's awesome. I just love how God deals with a conniver and a deceiver in grace, in grace, God's grace. God appears to him. God gives promises to him. And God establishes his covenant with him. In a bleak place, in a place of loneliness, in a place of desperation, he travels out 40 miles. In one day, he travels 40 miles. He's really afraid of his brother. He's weary from the journey. And there that night, he takes a rock for a pillow, puts it under his head, probably scared that he could lose his life, wondering what's ahead, looking out at the stars of the sky, wondering where God is, how far God, away, God must be away. And that night, a vision is given to him. In a dream, he sees a ladder going from earth to heaven, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And God, standing at the top of the ladder, gives him his promise of protection. And Jacob wakes up and went, Whoa! God is awesome, or how awesome is this place, in true California kind of terms. And he said, the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. So we're going to see how God reveals himself to this man. Though he had a spiritual bent, he was living in a very carnal fashion. I'm amazed at the election of God. God chose Jacob. God called him, and God chose him by his predestination in election. God elected him to take the covenant. The Bible tells us, you did not choose God. God chose you and ordained you that you would bear forth fruit. What a privilege to be called by God. God picks winners. God chooses people to be saved. Based upon his foreknowledge, God knows the heart and the response of that person. And in his foreknowledge, knowing the end from the beginning, he makes his choice. Now, we have a problem with that, principally because we lack the ability to know the future. We don't have foreknowledge. Well, that's not fair. How can he choose? Because he knows how that person will choose and respond, and he makes his choice based on foreknowledge. Now, we don't have foreknowledge. Sometimes people will come, and they'll give us a resume, and they'll be hired. Six months down the line, you think, why did I ever do that? This person's a waste. This person can't cut it. It was the wrong choice. God has the ability to see into the future, knowing the temperament and the decisions in the heart of that person, and make a choice based on foreknowledge. Jesus told his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. I believe that tonight... God is calling some of you. God has chosen some of you. And you up to this point have not known God's choice. The Holy Spirit, over the months, through the witness of some of your friends, some of your relatives, has been tugging at the strings of your heart to make a decision to follow Christ. And you know it's from Him. And you're kind of teetering on the edge. Should I choose the Lord? Should I make a decision to follow? Oh, I don't know. 
It tells us in the book of Acts, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, did God choose you? Perhaps that remains to be seen. I know some people will say, that's not fair. It's not fair that God could choose people. Maybe God didn't choose me to be saved. You can, you can prove that theory wrong. By saying, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And when you do that, you will find that God has chosen you from the foundations of the world. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to choose. Well, maybe God didn't choose you then. But you can never use that as an excuse. Whosoever will, the scripture says, let him come. You see, it works two ways. Whosoever will, let him come, Jesus said. And so you look at that and say, all right, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. So you open the door and you walk in. The door closes behind you. And in the reverse part of the door, it says, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Think, wait a minute, I made the choice, I walked in the door, only to find that God chose you. Now, God's looking for you tonight. Some people might say, well, I'm here because I'm searching for God. He's not lost. God is searching for you tonight. Some of you are lost. You have no direction. You have really no purpose, no principle in life, no guiding force. The last thing I'm asking you to do is get religious or embrace some creed. I'm asking you to embrace the person of Jesus Christ. He lives tonight. We're not talking about something that happened a long time ago and has no relevant bearing on today's society. Jesus Christ is the only person who died was buried and rose from the dead, and today that same historical Jesus lives now. He lives to change lives. And he's tugging at the heart of some of you tonight. He's saying, I've chosen you. I want to bring you into fellowship, into relationship with me. I want to forgive you of your sins. I want to give you purpose and meaning in life. You say, well, how do I come to know that? The Bible says, as many as would receive him, to them gave he the power to become children of God. To those who would believe in his name. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You must receive him. And when you come by faith, receiving the person of Jesus, believing what he did for you on the cross, asking him to wash away your sins, the moment you embrace him in that fashion, at that moment, you will have everlasting life, as the scripture says. You'll become a child of God. You'll find purpose, you'll find meaning, and you'll have eternal life. What a deal. To come into relationship with God. Maybe up to this point you've been like Esau, sort of living for the comfort zones of this life, your own little pleasures. You've made your plans, you've seen some of them succeed, but your life is not fulfilled. May God give to you the power to, in obedience, come into relationship by responding to him tonight. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God that is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, we pray that as many people's decisions tonight are being weighed in the balances, those who have been on the verge of receiving Christ and up to this point have not really done it, or those who have not made a public profession, to follow Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that tonight would be the night that they do it. Bring them home, rescue them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.